You are listening to Resident Advisors Exchange, where we meet the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Martha. Thank you for being here with us. This week, I am so looking forward to sharing with you my conversation with Lawrence Leck. There's this kind of slightly cliched idea in architecture that, you know, architecture is frozen music. All these harmonies and melodies and rhythms are frozen in time in, in, you know, physical space. Lawrence Leck is an artist, filmmaker and musician working in the fields of virtual reality and simulation. He has a background in architecture, which makes his take on electronic music especially striking. Lawrence's creations vary from virtual worlds to dystopian Brexit simulators, conspiracy theory video essays to AI coming-of-age tales and site-specific video games. The soundtrack to Lawrence's latest film, Idol, has just been released by Hyperdub. Lawrence and I caught up at the very end of 2020. We spoke about IKEA, architecture and rendering, the legacy of the millennium bug, and AI as an avatar of human otherness. I hope that you have a wonderful listen to Lawrence Leck on The Exchange. Lawrence Leck joins me on the podcast. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. I'm really excited to speak with you today. Oh, that's great, Martha. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Tell us a bit about where you are right now. It looks amazing in the background of your Zoom window. I'm I'm in my studio at uh, Somerset House at the moment, and like it's kind of storage area for a lot of the uh, kind of sculptures and installations that I used to do before I started basically just doing purely kind of virtual and digital stuff. So there's a kind of pavilion in the background, which was Mm. like the last installation I made, which was about maybe about seven years ago. And that's been in lots of white vans around London with me in different like iterations. (laughs) It's traveled around, it looks amazing. Um, So I mostly know your work from kind of on screens, um, from the Notel and what I've seen at um, Zero, which was a party put on by Hyperdub that used to happen at Corsica Studios back when we were allowed to go outside. Um, How long have you kind of been making this immersive visual kind of universes and building those? Sure. So I've... um... I've got a background in architecture and I was always doing kind of video and music at at the side as well. There's this kind of slightly cliched um, uh, cliched idea in architecture that, you know, architecture is frozen music. So, you know, when you're a bit introduced, you're, you know, you're studying for the first time, you're like, wow, it's like all these harmonies and melodies and rhythms are frozen in time in, in you know, physical space. Um, So this idea of building a kind of virtual world is always like really wrapped up in the kind of idea of architecture as well, because, you know, most buildings are drawn, most cities are kind of planned before they exist in reality. And of course, many things pop up organically. So about about five, about seven years ago now, after actually I did the last pavilion, um, I started thinking like, 
you know, what if we took this idea of representation or the virtual space, not as like um, an intermediate step in the whole process, but to think of it as a final thing, like you would in a, in a film or like a manga or in a video game, basically, you know, the environment is, um, is real, even though it's being seen on screen. So if you feel psychologically feel a sense of immersion in that world, it's the same, it's an equivalent thing, essentially. So did you study architecture? Yeah, exactly. So I, I, in in summary, yeah. So I studied architecture for quite a few years in between doing a lot of music on the side. And um, yeah, I guess about seven or eight years ago, started doing virtual worlds and kind of like my, you know, virtual artworks full time, basically. Now that I know that, I'm kind of making these connections between your work and the kind of, I don't know what the technical term, maybe you can help me, it for, you know, like a prototype that you'll see when you're getting your kitchen redesigned or whatever. Um, there's maybe some sort of similarities in how you learnt your craft through that way. Totally. So, you know, my mum my mum was an estate agent. And so growing up, I would see, you know, these half half finished apartments and things like that but what I always liked was show flats you know it's like the ideal living before it actually exists and of course no one's flat actually looks like that it's you know no one has anything so it's kind of like an Ikea rendering right so interesting thing that I think Ikea just stopped publishing their catalogs I think I read but also Ikea Ikea catalogs have been fully 3d rendered I think for actually quite a long time now so this idea of you know in in front of you know the, the the lobby of a new building you'd have a model of the building as well these like artist impressions of like utopian people going around their like neutral generic lives in their neutral generic cars i think as a kid i kind of liked that idea because I, I grew up a lot in southeast asia where you know um like hong kong and singapore it's very chaotic as like an urban environment so somehow this like ideal lego utopia was i think a, a strong childhood impression just because it had such a contrast to real life yeah i think when you um I, there's like two common reactions to like you know a show flat where it's already done like i, th I feel like half of people are like oh this is fascinating and kind of soothing in a way like when you're going around ikea and everything's all arranged how you you could have it and then some people are like no i would never do it like that like that's all wrong um how did you pick apart um and make something that felt kind of right to you yeah i mean there's there's a huge difference between the social experience of going through Ikea and the more like, you know, conceptual or intellectual exercise of thinking about, you know, what you want to do with your time creatively. Um, but I was always interested in the idea of, I, I guess, landscape painting, you know, the idea that uh, you would, or, you know, some painter or someone who, some artist would go out in the landscape, observe things and then make a new landscape, which was composed of different fragments of different places. Um, so in a similar way, when I'm building the virtual worlds, it's kind of got fragments of, you know, different places, some of which are based on reality, uh, some of which are based on, 
you know, a kind of recombination or kind of collage or kind of mix, basically, of spaces both real and imagined, basically. And like I was saying with the IKEA catalogue or the artist's impression, there's no real difference between these two things. They exist in different points in time, but as a space, it's very similar. But of course, when it's brought into messy reality, lots of different, um, lots of different issues come up, basically. Which, which don't exist in the, in the show flat, which don't exist in the virtual world unless they're explicitly introduced there to add some texture or sense of immersion or interaction to the world. Would you say that with your um, video work and the kind of more filmic story pieces that you are drawn to um, creating them because they, you know, you have like a certain amount of control over what issues exist in them socially? Yeah, to to some extent, it's it's kind of a um, you know, it's kind of like a microcosm of many other different things, um, because of course, you know, in terms of firstly in set design, you can you can control which elements are there. In terms of like I was saying with this kind of collage idea, you there's an almost like infinite um, opportunity to add different elements, but because of Certain, you know, time, technical limitations, and so on. It's better to kind of distill that into symbols or things that are really kind of evocative and or atmospheric, rather than just chucking everything in there. And I think that's that's quite important. And I think also the other thing is, in terms of referring to different places or different ideas or different histories. Of course, different audiences might be not aware of some of them. Like for me, all the Singapore and Malaysia references I would know, but not necessarily for like a European or American audience. So I'm always trying to, I guess, calibrate or tune what elements there are according to, you know, what I think will make sense. And also it's the films I do is essentially kind of CGI fantasies rooted in reality. So of course, then I'm not trying to make a documentary, of course. So it's important to have some sort of realism or plausibility to the world, but not try to be accurate, because what does that even mean? Thinking more along the kind of storytelling in your work, there's um, a lot of references to kind of AI. And I was wondering if you recall your kind of first encounter with AI and what about that made you want to explore that further and kind of what stayed with you about that first interaction? Yeah, as I guess I'm kind of uh, one of the older millennials. So as a kid who kind of grew up in the like late 90s, the two or three, would I say, kind of prevalent technological things in mainstream culture, I guess, were... Or, or things on the horizon were Millennium Bug, right? Where in the year 2000, people thought that all the computers would crash and all the nuclear power stations would go into meltdown because they couldn't deal with the 99 coming zero zero in terms of the year. It's Millennium Bug, so this kind of apocalypse that's going to happen because of our reliance on technology. There's also uh, basically Internet 1.0. So in terms of the internet economy, it's a first bubble that burst around that time um so the internet was a huge thing um as well as ai and virtual reality basically so you know 20 years later we see or at least i see the um how all these different ideas that used to be kind of promises or essentially kind of academic 
specialties become much more ingrained in everyday life in terms of you know VR becoming essentially something like a either an advertising tool uh, sorry not VR VR and AR becoming like a massive advertising tool and as a way to um, spread things into the virtual world as you know for example Facebook bought Oculus one of the largest VR manufacturers years ago um, and also AI is not is not as exciting as we would think essentially like the the applications of of it currently are actually much more mundane you know it's like practical problem solving so it's much less like you know in the late 90s it was it was kind of utopian of course it was very corporate driven and so on but the idea that for example internet chat would you know stop people fighting amongst each other because everyone could talk together was very much a dream at that time so um yeah it's interesting for me to see how these things evolve and that's kind of the roots of the interest in ai this idea that it would be um this uh unknowable creature i guess um and had less i mean it definitely did have dystopian underpinnings don't get me wrong but i think maybe because i encountered it when i was like 13 it's you know slightly different i think you're much less conscious of um social and political factors behind technology you're a kid and has your kind of opinion of it changed since then or is there still kind of echoes of that sort of awe-inspiring curiosity i guess i guess to some extent i was um i was having a um a talk about science fiction as a as a genre basically and it was really interesting i mean this was more in the context of screenwriting for for film and um angeli who's leading the class was saying some really interesting things you know going back to you know Prometheus, like not the Titan, not the Ridley Scott film. Um, uh, Prometheus and, you know, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, this idea of science fiction. Of course, people associate science fiction with, you know, spectacular effects or a weird fantasy setting and these kind of things. But what we were talking about was that, you know, science fiction is a way to talk about, I guess, humanity's continuing attempts to transcend itself so if you look at uh, many of the tropes of science fiction like you know a, a search for immortality or resurrection you know a, a way to transcend life or death which is kind of the frankenstein thing and how that leads to you know humanity or the inventor or creator's downfall very much frankenstein um the uh the specter of like possible worlds we might be creating whether that's you know 1984 Terminator, Ghost in the Shell, all these kind of things. So my point is that even though science fiction is often seen as, you know, kind of blockbuster entertainment because of the investment in the visual spectacle, actually it's really about, I guess, I mean, broadly speaking, our relationship to, you know, mortality, our kind of downfall that plays with ideas of, um, our downfall that comes because of an attempt to play God, essentially. Um, so that's, you know, that's really interesting. For me, of course, even though some of my new work deals with AI, it's actually not about 
attempts to play God. I'm, I'm trying to render things from the other perspective. So whereas in many, I mean, works that concern AI, um, whereas the AI is generally seen as the other in those contexts, or it's kind of you know ambiguous whether the protagonist is human or android like in Blade Runner or something, I'm much more interested in rendering the world from this AI's point of view. And of course, I'm a human, so I don't really know. But I think for me, the AI is, you know, it's like an avatar of a human other. So in early science fiction, in the 40s and 50s, actually, you know, the uh, the enemy is extremely racialized, whether it's, you know, Ming the Merciless in Flash Gordon or Creature from the Black Lagoon and things like that. It's, uh, I mean, it's very got very clear kind of racial um, implications, basically, about, you know, fear of China or other continents, Africa and so on, um, or, you know, Slavic nations. So one thing I was interested in is that the AI, it's not just this kind of technological being, but for me, it stands, uh, it represents a symbol that humanity like rallies around to point the finger at, for example, you know? Uh, so that's, I guess, my position on AI as a kind of uh, not really, I mean, firstly, not really as a straightforward binary enemy. Um, but as something that's kind of intrinsically human as well. Let's talk a bit more about um, perhaps like a specific piece of your work. Um, maybe we should talk about the Notel because I am connected to it as well because I got to see it and I got to do a little DJ set at the ICA, as you were saying, many years ago. Um, so perhaps you could tell everyone about that piece of work. Notel is a... Um, audiovisual collaboration I, ha I have kind of ongoing with Code 9 so it started off as a kind of live show related to his uh, last album Nothing and specifically a track on there called No Tell which looks at um, essentially the track is meant to evoke the the music that you might hear in a luxury automated hotel of the future so essentially, the Notel it's it's a it's a live walkthrough tour through this luxury, fully automated hotel, which is, you know, plays on ideas of hyper luxury and full automation and being taken care of by AIs and what the future is of, I guess, not housing but like how people live. Because, for example, like. If you think of a hotel itself, a hotel is kind of interesting because kind of like what I was saying about Ikea or artist renderings, it's something that you take for granted. But if you think about it, it's really crazy because it's like it's a machine for living in where all the maintenance by, you know, cleaners, hotel workers, receptionists and so on. Um, operate on two separate channels, if that makes sense. Like, you know, in the corridor, there's always the kind of the cup, the service cupboard that guests don't access, but maintenance workers do. And there's a whole kind of back of house infrastructure that guests never interact with. So there's kind of like two worlds going on at the same time. And 
not only are these two things separated in space, but they're also separated separated in time. So, you know, all the kind of cleaning and maintenance happens on its own schedule once all the guests have gone out for the day and things like that. So in a way, it's kind of, it's an automated system. It's kind of run by humans in general. So, but of course, it's it's kind of this machine clockwork that just operates. So on one hand, it's, you know, just like a, a very good example of a you know, capitalist economy machine run by humans that uh, we thought could easily be adaptable to AIs in a future post-work society. So the Notel is kind of riffing on these ideas of, you know, replacement of labor, which of course is something that has been talked about in terms of industrial revolution or robotics or AI very much, but with this kind of slightly more playful edge, what if you actually taken care of by these uh, by these systems, so um, the performance that you you DJed at and saw at the ICA was um, was the audio visual version of this show, and then we did some kind of installation versions. We did a version at, at Corsica at the Zero Night, I think, was it in twenty nineteen. So it's kind of um, ongoing, and it's been really interesting for me because also the Notel itself, it's this massive circular building, virtual building, of course, but it was based on um, Steve Jobs's Apple campus in in Cupertino in California. So actually, my last job as an architect, um, some of my friends were working on this building, which is a massive donut shaped one. I urge everyone to like look at it because it's kind of nuts because also it's also like Steve Jobs's kind of monument to himself it's you know the address is literally one infinite loop and the building is shaped like a loop because of course you know apple's totally like horizontal flat no hierarchies all knowledge flows in a circle um i think there was that science fiction movie called the circle about you know startup culture as well but anyway the notel was kind of riffing on this architecture of like you know um it's literally trying to be a symbol of the uh, culture or worldview that's trying to create, like this, you know, complete flow, no beginning and no end, but also um, being built as a as a building. So, how do you go about adapting your pieces for different spaces and different um, kind of environments? Kind of. <laughs> I improvise Um, because sometimes it starts for example sometimes I start doing like a soundtrack or a piece of music or a video or a virtual world and then three months later I get an invitation to do something in a different kind of space like for example Notel started as something more towards like you know electronic music festivals like sonar or mirror that have a kind of audiovisual element to it and then it evolved to then i got invited to do something you know like in in a gallery space and then i kind of adapt that to you know a kind of different physical context or sometimes i might have an uh installation show and then i make a film out of that and that film might spark some ideas that evolve into something else later on so you know I was saying this kind of collage idea with the virtual world but sometimes you know ideas snowball um, over time 
Okay, well, let's talk about your most recent film. Um, it ties in quite nicely because the soundtrack is released with Hyperdub. Um, first of all, would you just introduce the film to everyone and give people a sort of overview of what it's about before we go into how you made it? Sure. Um, Idol, which is A-I-D-O-L, like A-I plus Idol. So Idol is a CGI film set in the year 2065 in Malaysia, in the Malaysian jungle. And it follows a, a kind of a fading superstar called Diva, who wants to make a comeback performance at the uh, at the World Esports Olympics. So it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, Beyonce or Prince doing the halftime Super Bowl performance, but instead of American football, it's esports. Um, and the video game that's being played is, you know, it's called Call of Duty. So it's this first person shooter game. Um, and basically Diva has to make a soundtrack for the game and for the performance. But she's kind of stuck because her evil record label company wants her to make something really generic and kind of poppy, but she wants to do something kind of more genuine and heartfelt. And so she enlists uh, an AI called Geomancer to help her ghostwrite the songs. So that's essentially the the story. So in this context of this project, were you writing music with a visual scene in mind or were the images kind of coming from the sketches of your songs? Yeah, I mean, usually soundtracks are quite often done to picture, essentially. So um, once there's a kind of rough cut or edit of the film, the composer kind of you know, gets a keyboard and it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to try this. So for example, if you see, um, there's a really interesting making of the Blade Runner soundtrack with Van Vangelis, for example, where it's like, it's playing on the screen and he's got surrounded by synths and doing some magic. So I don't know if that was just for the camera and he knew exactly what he's going to play, but he makes it sound very improvised. Um, whereas for me, usually I actually do some I do quite a lot of music before I start rendering or building the virtual world. The reason for that is two things. I think firstly, of course, you know, CGI or any computer graphics by itself is a very, um, it has very little atmosphere, basically. To me, it's not giving much of a vibe. So I always try and set the tone somehow by doing some music that just acts as some something to a bit more atmospheric while I'm w working on, you know, the long process of um, building a virtual world, very often with friends, to, you know, that's going to form the film. So I kind of do three things in parallel in general. I'm kind of writing the script, designing or like thinking about how the world building or set design is going to be, and doing some sound or music to start with. Um, Idol is a sequel to a film I did in 2017 called Geomancer. And basically Geomancer looks at, it's about an AI satellite who wants to be an artist. But whereas Ge uh, Geomancer was looking more at like computer vision and some friends were like, oh, you know, we like the soundtrack, we, the voices sound really nice. So I thought the next film could be more specifically about the voice and, and music as well. Um, and also, in the Geomancer soundtrack, I use a kind of Yamaha Vocaloid to do the vocals. 
and the Vocaloid is called Cyber Diva. So I just called the main character um, Diva in Idol. Actually, Yamaha upgraded Diva in between these two years, so now it's Cyber Diva 2. So I just thought it kind of like slightly hilarious and kind of sad how you know everyone gets upgraded even the the kind of vocaloid um in that sense so this idea of the voice being upgraded and of course with yamaha vocaloid software it's not it's not ai synthesized voices it's based on human singers so diva is somebody i can't remember their name but you know this idea that they'd have to go in two years later yamaha's like do all the vowels, do all the syllables, you know, sing through the dictionary. <laughs> it's kind of wildly, uh, wildly dystopian, but kind of funny at the same time. I'd love to hear a bit more about what you use to make music. So you've mentioned one thing, but what is your kind of setup for creating music these days? Yeah, my setup is, I mean, I started with... Um, playing guitar, a lot of like atmospheric kind of shoegaze kind of stuff. I love, love reverb <laughs> and delay. Um, but over time, to be honest, my setup has just, it shrunk for a while to basically guitar Ableton and um, lots of different, not even plugins. I actually use very generic setups quite a lot of the time um, because I think, I, I wouldn't say my interest, but I think I kind of gravitate towards doing like melodies and songwriting. I guess it's a very basic kind of guitar thing. It's like, it's of course, lots of musicians totally screw around with the instrument. But for me, it's, um, it's really good for songwriting basically. Uh, and so that idea of melodic lines or kind of verse chorus verse song structure have kind of bled into uh, the idle soundtrack which is more songs and of course the difference between normal kind of songwriting songs and more electronic music is that in general this is a huge um, simplification but in general uh, electronic music track will just do one thing build dr drop build up again whereas you know with songs the verse chorus verse structure is is quite different so and and again in soundtracks it's kind of different again because a soundtrack in general will be continuously evolving you won't you might have like repetition of Darth Vader's theme or something like that but it would evolve and you know the orchestral arrangement will be different every time so with the idol soundtrack I was kind of interested in these three different kinds of composition one you know, the soundtrack's continuously evolving. Um, one, the song structure, which is kind of formulaic in its own way. And the other is like the electronic music track, which is kind of builds, drops and builds again. Um, and for the soundtrack as well, I worked with a sound designer and composer, Seth Scott, to do some of the arrangements for some of the tracks or to create abstract or ambient versions of some of the songs and you know I'd worked with him a bunch of times before but it was really interesting seeing uh, his working process because of course he's purely focused on you know the sound and, and music whereas I was also thinking of like how do these tracks 
recur in time, if that makes sense. Because the film, it's it's a kind of film film with a narrative that starts at the beginning and goes to the end, but it's also the story of um, the making of the, the soundtrack as well, because Diva and Geomancer are working on the soundtrack over the course of the film, which gets released at the end of the film, and now we're talking, and now it's been released by uh, Hyperdub as well, so it's this idea that, you know, it might be set in 2065, but it's also a kind of vehicle for what's happening today as well. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to it. <laughs> yeah. um, I was wondering because, you know, I have a fairly good understanding of like music making processes from doing all my interviews on here, but I have a very limited understanding of how you would create a film like this one um, in terms of the images. So I was wondering how does your process differ you know, music making to creating the the renders and the visuals that we see in the film? And are there any bits of crossover or any similarities in the two processes? For, for Idol, I was working with, you know, one of my best friends, Clifford Sage, who's a, a musician and, you know, an incredible 3D artist and animator. And it's really interesting because, you know, people would think that I mean, because it's a pretty uh, arcane thing. You know, people would think that computer graphics or rendering is a very generic, not generic, but, you know, it just happens automatically. And there's, it's more of a technical problem than a craft one. But it's really interesting because Clifford and I have completely different approaches to 3D worlds. So he's primarily, I mean, I wouldn't say primarily because he does everything. He comes of it from a perspective of, an animator, right? Where everything in the world is um, alive and moving and interacts with each other. Like every object, whether it's a rock or a landscape, is kind of like a character. Whereas, you know, I come from it from the point of view of like an architect with like, this is a space, this is a landscape, and things are more like a set. So working with Clifford to do all the... Um, CGI on on Idol was really interesting because I was always thinking about things like in terms of cinematography like in other words how does how are we going to show this from this angle and this lighting and Clifford was thinking about how all the different elements work together organically what does that mean for example if you look at a very um a very expensive AAA video game like GTA 5 let's say right the world is not static, you know, it's not just that the weather is changing, but, you know, let's say you do something to this character and then, I don't know, two hours later, they will, you know, try and kill you or something like that. So what I mean is the, the world itself has a memory and it interacts with the player. Um, it's dynamic and constantly evolving. And what I mean is that, like, in Clifford's music, which is constantly evolving, he does a lot of like improvised processes. The way that he's building the world kind of has this animated quality as well. Whereas when I'm building a world or like the music making, it's very kind of compositional, right? So like I was saying, when I'm building a song, I'm thinking, okay, these chords are working for, you know, the verse, how's, how's it gonna rise to the chorus? It's kind of more 
architectural to to put it in in these terms where everything is um isn't as dynamic and evolving as what would be more animated but it flows in a different kind of way and so to to bring this kind of more architectural view and a more animated view together is really important for me in in filmmaking because without the animated view cgi is just too static but without the kind of architectural organization cgi is pure chaos and that pure chaos can work well for like you know uh an instagram clip or like a music video but it it's it's can't be sustained or, or a live show for that matter but it can't be sustained over like you know an hour and a half like for a film because i think you know when people watch um something something that demands so much of their time and attention there's other things going on than eye candy basically and it's uh, really important to try and orchestrate these uh these different elements well you know the the virtual element the the sonic one and also the meaning or the narrative of what's going on mm. um even though the film is set in 2065 and obviously you would have made it before 2020 before i'm seeing it um there's still these a few uncannily kind of fitting moments that are very 2020 to me um <laughs> even the kind of the pressures around doing a live stream like I don't know maybe I was just triggered but there's just been a lot of live streams this year um <laughs> what what has this year been like for you as an artist well I mean it's been difficult but I don't think it's been anywhere near as difficult for people who um rely on live performance essentially not you know musicians like actors performance art artists and so on um i feel really <laughs> i mean again lucky in a very dystopian way that i've been engaged in not just virtual worlds and cgi but this the the subjects of you know automation remoteness alienation um disconnection for quite a long time and of course a lot of those things like alienation and disconnection it's like super emo right but i think the kind of it's so it's been yeah definitely really difficult but last you know last year was like very difficult for me because of you know um just personal and family stuff so actually personally this year it's better but in terms of how i feel about um you know just what's going on it's it's kind of uh yeah just very difficult basically but i feel yeah personally really lucky but um it it's given me i guess space and space and time to yeah think about what i'm doing i suppose even and even if i'd been you know thinking about these themes of um you know remoteness and alienation for a long time especially within the virtual world and you know dependence on technology and so on it's just um it's a bit too real i guess mm. yeah it's different when you have the choice and you have the option to not do that um to compared to when we kind of all have to do it but perhaps you had sort of trained yourself a bit to operate in these kind of realms which a lot of people have sort of just found themselves in with no no warm-up shall we say 
Right, right. And I think that the real strange paradox, not this year, but in the last, you know, three or four years, is that, yeah, the paradoxically, when you work in virtual worlds or, you know, on electronic music, it can be really collaborative and fun. And so for me, it's really important to, you know, work with friends, basically. So I think one of the, um, you know, one of the impressions of like, lonely people by themselves in their in their bedrooms, which definitely is happens a lot, isn't necessarily like my experience, I guess, because, you know, like I was saying with, you know, Seth and Clifford and Code Nine, some it's it's super fun to work together. Let alone with, you know, like Joni who does the voiceovers or Xiaoi who plays Diva. Like I'm personally quite an introverted person, so it's nice to have a project that forces me kind of out of my shell, which is really nice. Mm. Um another kind of main story arc is that the film comments on how artists can be manipulated by authorities like for example record label and I feel like that has been a big topic of conversation this year as well um, perhaps not so much labels but like platforms um, yeah. for distributing music um, what made you want to um, reference this kind of storyline yeah I mean actually it's that's a great question. It's it's really important because there's a, um, of course, the exploitative manager or you know record executive. It's kind of you know it's it's a trope basically. Whether you know you get on really abusive route of like kind of Ike and Tina Turner kind of thing, or you can think of self exploitation or you know, so what do I mean by self exploitation as like when an artist or a mu musician specifically becomes their persona so completely that it's completely inescapable. Um, and, you know, that becomes their kind of downfall. So there's a real kind of tragic element to that. Um, and also my very weird observation that basically death is good for sales, right? So what does that mean? It's like Prince died last night album sales go up and he's top of Spotify charts. So it's a very, very strange universe, basically, that the mortal human is sometimes the one thing that stands in the way of great sales, right? I mean, and you can see this with, you know, like Nirvana reissues, because, you know, I'm sure what, yeah, the next year, I guess, it'll be like 30 years of Nevermind. There'll be reissues, double gatefold, record releases for record store day and stuff <clears throat> so nothing makes sense basically in terms of these um yeah just just kind of what what i observe and how things go so that's one thing like um the sometimes exploitative relationship between essentially artists and their own persona or you know power power divides in in creative fields um, but also, there's also the algorithmic side of it, which quite simply didn't used to be there to some to the same extent. Of course, like record labels would always probably invest more in their top selling artists, right? Um, and be biased towards, you know, the people who are already generating the hits, ignoring the kind of rest. But I think now, of course, with, you know, 
Spotify streaming algorithms and you know YouTube optimization and different marketing money strategies and ways to push content out there it's really shifted so sometimes I think of myself as you know I'm not an artist or a musician I'm just a content producer for you know whatever digital stream will have me and of course in different art forms people treat their work very differently for example if you're a blogger you're not gonna you don't it's not a novelist you're not a novelist you're still writing but it's a very different thing of course for me because sometimes I work in you know fine art galleries or film festivals I would be a director or an artist but of course I'm really interested in how my stuff can just exist online or exist very organically which is how I discovered you know art music and films that I like myself you know I didn't care what platform or frame they came in when I was 13 but of course all of a sudden you become professionalized and it becomes your livelihood and you have to think about those platforms and so for me now those platforms isn't just resident advisor or the ICA or different venues it's you know it's online platforms as well um, which have a whole different uh, you know politics and process behind them and of course even though my my work in my work I you know research how these streaming platforms and how deep learning AI works and so on I'm continuously surprised with um, how it works for example I had a, a few self-released albums on like I think Spotify and they send me monthly emails saying congratulations your album had 12 album streams last month, you know. So even if you get one stream, you kind of get the same email that, I don't know, like Taylor Swift would get. Like, congratulations, Taylor. You've got 27.4 million, <laughs> you know. Um, what is it? Another one is like, April was full of high notes. You know, you've got 12% more listeners. Now you've got 15 and things like that. It's, it's kind of, again, um, tragic and and hilarious you know that the we're just on this massive mailing list for content producers and, it, and it's kind of very equal um yeah um i had one more question about how you made this film um the kind of naturey earthy water sounds that are in there they're like obviously quite a contrast to the style of what you're seeing on the screen um where do you collect your sounds from and do you record them yourself sure so the environment sounds are seth's that he does field recordings for fairly often i mean maybe not during lockdown but um at different points i mean i can talk about the texture that it kind of creates so you know as i was saying before CGI or virtual worlds by themselves, when it's just the pure image, it's so artificial, which I love, but in terms of immersion, it's not so good. But when you take that like pure artificiality and you have a field recording of running water or wind, somehow, you know, you have, you create this montage in your mind or your mind creates this montage where it exists in between these two places, you know, the fully natural and the fully synthetic. And I really like that, that texture or that atmosphere where it's both incredibly artificial and extremely natural at the same time. Mm. Yeah, that definitely comes across. Um, 
So before I let you get back to your studio, I would love to hear kind of what's your plans for the upcoming year and what's going to be happening next for you. Yeah, I'm working on a new film that's about a um, a crime committed by a self-driving car, basically. So it's kind of like a, I guess in terms of genre it's it's kind of like a road movie and crime story at the same time but whereas um geomancer and idol are set in you know 2065 this is more set in the in the in the near future i guess and i mean that's the main thing i'm I'm working on because i can't really see further than that Mm, that sounds exciting (laughs) Um, well, thank you so much for kind of bringing me into your world and, and sharing with us all about your um, process, really. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. What is it? My single isn't finished yet. 